Hello, welcome to another episode of Bright Threads in the Tapestry, a series where I piece together the brightest threads from my favorite stories and analyze them to figure out what makes them shine. Today I am back with a bright thread from The Curse of the Mistrate, which is the first book of The Wars of Light and Shadow by Johnny Watts. Uh, this passage will be fairly spoiler-free. I think I can keep it that way. I don't have to spoil any events in the book, so you should feel free to listen to this if you haven't read the book yet and are maybe considering reading it and would like a sample of words is writing for instance um i what it does have is some deep history and lore of the world which at least until book three hasn't spoiled anything yet for me it feels fairly self-contained in terms of um what it uh, tells the story of and it feels like a good thing to sample <laughs> in terms of writing so so yeah so that's what we'll do we will look at uh, the passage is basically the history of an 18000 year old sword and it is uh, the sword is alethiel which arathon one of the characters is carrying and um it has some special powers which we have just witnessed in a preceding scene and this passage sort of tells the history of that sword. Now, um, in this episode, I'm not going to do a what is this series about uh, portion of it. I will link the first episode, the first Curse of the Mistrade Bright Thread episode so that uh, you have that if you like to reference it. And at some point, it's coming, I promise, I will make <laughs> a video in which I just do a uh, thoughts and impressions type discussion of the curse of the mistrate so that there is some sort of spoiler free uh, video <laughs> available about this so that I can reference in my future episodes of bright threads so all of that is coming look out for that but meanwhile if all you're looking for is uh, some sort of introduction to the wars of light and shadow uh, do consider checking out uh, the first bright threads episode well, I think it was the second ever Bright Threads episode, but it was the first one for Wars of Light and Shadow. <laughs> so I'll, I'll link that in the description. Um, yeah, so so the plan for today's episode is first I'll read this passage to you. And uh, I, I will have timestamps uh, that you can jump to if you'd prefer to read it yourself or if you remember <laughs> the section and you just want to listen to the discussion. Um of that I can do for those of you watching this on YouTube for the podcast unfortunately if you don't want to listen to me read you're just going to have to skip ahead I don't I don't know if there's a way to jump to a specific timestamp I don't know how to set that up if there is so yeah scrubbing <laughs> uh, please scrub to, to the part I, I think the reading goes for about 13 minutes I just finished recording it so uh, yeah whenever I say that I'm starting the reading you can try your luck about 13 minutes from <laughs> where we leave off um so that's for the reading and then we'll talk about um why i like this passage so much uh, why i think this is a bright thread and i also want to use this passage as sort of a jumping off point for discussions about some 
topics around uh, world building and uh, some writing, basically. Specifically, uh, the phrase is info dumping and making a lived-in world or building a lived-in feeling world. I want to discuss uh, those two aspects or those two phrases that I hear uh, used in reviews a lot. I want to explore them a little bit, if you will. Um, to be clear, <laughs> I am not going to be saying anything negative about Wurtz's book uh, or writing because, you know, I am doing a Bright, Thro Bright Threads episode <laughs> after all. <laughs> so I really love this. So it's just uh, something that I want to explore in general. And I think this uh, passage serves as a great example to do so. Cool. Uh, without further ado, here's the reading of the passage. The five riders bound for Camrys suffered no second attack by Kadrim, though for safety's sake through several of the narrower defiles, Asandir asked Arathon to ride with his sword unsheathed in his hand. The blade evinced no glow of warning, and then the pass fell behind. The pitch of the road became less rugged, and the jagged crags rounded to hills. At twilight, the company made camp in a cave on the far slopes of Tornier Peaks. The shelter was often used by summer caravans, and passing generations of wagoners had built in some comforts over time. Benches of split logs surrounded a rock-lined fire pit, and a crude stand of fencing had been erected beneath the underhang of a natural outcrop. In places, moss-grown remnants of stone walls showed where sheds and an earlier inn had been levelled in some forgotten past conflict. Once the horses were unsaddled and Dakar sent off to gather wood, Asandir crouched down with kindling and chips and began clearing away the ashes left by last season's travellers. He gestured through the failing light as Lysair knelt to help. If the mist were to lift off the valley, you could see lights from here, wayside inns on the plain of Carmack. The roads of North Korea's might have gone wild, but the trade routes from Atania cross Camrys. The lands are better travelled there, and on the east shore, ships still ply the bay. Lysair stared out into gathering darkness, but his eyes saw only mist. Descended from an island culture, he could not imagine the vast spread of continent described by the sorcerer's words. It must have been hard seeing your civilization shrink to a shadow of its former greatness. Asandir paused, his hands quiet on his knees. His eyes turned piercing into distance. Harder than you know, young Silicid, but the sun will shine over us again. Felirin and Arathon entered, adding the smells of healing herbs and wet leaves to the dusky scent of dry charcoal. The wound on the grey stallion's neck had been washed and cared for. The bard carried a handsome silver-bossed saddle, his own, recovered that day from the corpse of his former palfrey. Asandir had retained a replacement set of reins, but the rest of the wagons and goods they had burnt, lest unwitting passers-by linger for salvage and tempt the Kadrim to further massacre. Outside the cave, the wind picked up, moaning through a stand of stunted pines. Wind is coming early, Felidin observed. Seems to move in a little sooner every year. Unaware that such shifts in the seasons were the ongoing effects of Daishtia, 
He dumped his saddle over a log bench and sat, the skirt flap a welcome backrest after exhausting hours astride. As Asandir's efforts graced the cave with a curl of pale flame, the bard inspected his hands and cursed. The fingernails he needed to pluck his strings were split to the quick from shifting rocks. Arathons were no whit better and made bold by shared commiseration, Felidin gathered nerve and made inquiry. I don't recall any stanzas that mention a master of shadow. Asandir settled back, his face washed gold by flame light. That song has yet to be written. Gently, as an afterthought, he added, Felidin, it would not do to speak of this yet in the taverns, but you could see stars and sun within your lifetime. The bard gaped in astonishment, his glibness at a loss for reply. Asandir allowed the import of his words a moment to sink in. Then he said, Lysair and Arathon are the potential of a restored sky made real, the mistrate's bane promised five centuries ago by Dakar's prophecy of Westgate. Caught dumbfounded, Felidin struggled to recover something resembling equanimity. He swore once, hoarsely. Then, left only his performer's dignity, he said, how many of the old ballads are not myth, but true history? Most of them. Asandi waited, his look gravely steady, as this became assimilated through another shaken interval of silence. You are one of a chosen few who know. Dakar picked that moment to return, puffing under an armload of damp faggots. He had not bothered to shear off the dead branches, and his laziness had torn his better shirt. The ordinary intensity of his irritation became an anchor upon which Felidin hung sanity. Informed that his whole world stood poised on the brink of upheaval and change, the bard caught a shivering breath. For the sake of one commonplace mortal, save the rest until after we've had supper, I'm hungry enough to hallucinate, and hearing the impossible doesn't help. Later, warmed by leek stew and coals of a generous bonfire, the sorcerer gave the history of Arathon's sword. The tale was lengthy, beginning over 18,000 years in the past, when twelve blades were forged at Iser by the Paravian armourer, Ferritin Darian, from the cinder of a fallen star. Ferritin was Iltaris, a centaur, Asandir began, the Isarian swords were his finest, most famed creation, wrought at need to battle the vast packs of Kadrim that were the scourge of the Second Age. The histories that survive claim each blade took five years' labour, a full decade if one were to count the sorceries that went into the sharpening. When Ferritin finished, the steel held an edge that time nor battle could blunt. Here, the sorcerer paused and asked Arathon to bear his blade from the scabbard. You'll see there are no nicks, no flaws from hard usage. Yet, Alithiel has known the blows of two ages of strife. Asandir turned the quillins between his hands and firelight flashed on the inlay, which twined the dark length of the blade. The swords were given over to the fair folk, called sun children, for finishing. It was they who made the hilts and chased the channels for the inlay, no two patterns the same. But perhaps the greatest wonder is the metal set in the runes themselves. Asandi ran a finger over the inscriptions, and as an answering flare of silver traced his touch, his voice softened into reverence. Riatin, 
the unicorns, sang the great spells of defense. Masters of the lost art of name-binding, they infused the alloy with harmonics tuned to the primal chord of vibration used by Ath Creator to kindle the first stars with light. Legend holds that 21 masters took a decade to endow Alethiel alone. Asandir slipped the sword back in the scabbard with a soft sigh of sound. The enchantment was balanced to peak in defense of the sword's true bearer, dazzling the eyes of his enemy, but only if the engagement was just. Very few causes that drive a man to kill are righteous ones. Probably, Arathon's father never knew the nature of the weapon he left to his son. Arathon confirmed this with a nod, but did not speak. Haunted by his encounter with the sword's arcane powers, he feared to betray the dread that partnered such mystery, that some role waited to be asked of him to match such a grand weight of history. Determined to control his own fate, the Shadow Master sat with locked hands, while, with the skilled resonance of a storyteller, Asandir continued. The Isarian blades were crafted for the hands of six great lords of the Iltaris, and the six exalted lines of the Sun Children. Alethiel was the oddity. She was forged for Ferritin's son, Dorminir, a centaur born undersized. The blade was tailored to match his proportions, from the length to the balance of the grip. In the wars that followed, thousands of Kadrim died, their last memory the flaring brilliance of an Aserian sword's enchantment. Sadly, Dorminir was one of the fallen. His grieving father passed Alethiel to the king's heir. Arathon heard this and restrained a forcible wish to sh- stop his ears, walk away, even shout nonsense. Any reaction to halt this brilliant, weighty tapestry of names and sorrows far more comfortably left to the ghosts of forgotten heroes. Yet, the still powers in the sword, by their nature, commanded his respect. He could not bring himself to interrupt if Asandir noticed Arathon's distress he held back nothing the prince at that time was a sun child and true to type for his kind he stood just one span in height the sword's length reached nearly to his chin he had a shoulder scabbard fashioned for ceremonial appearances and took up the traditional king's blade upon accession at his predecessor's death Alethiel was given over to the line of Perhedral they, too, were sun-children, ill-suited to the weight of a large weapon. When King Anastir died childless, the tears Perhedral claimed the kingship. Since another sword accompanied the crown, Alethiel remained in the treasury until another rise of Kadrim threatened peace. A centaur lord wielded her through the war that followed, but the blade handled like a toy in his huge grip. Afterwards, the sword Alethiel changed owners again, this time becoming the property of the High King's cousin by marriage. It passed through his heirs to Kianor, who earned the honorific of Sun Lord. This drew a gasp from Felidin, who knew at least a dozen ballads made in praise of the Sun Lord's long reign. Asandir smiled. May the memory of those days never fade. Yet... Kianor, Sun Lord, did little but possess the sword. He assumed the Paravian crown in Second Age 2545, and as others before him, took up the king's blade out of preference. By then, Alethiel carried a second name, Dael Farin, 
or kingmaker because three of her bearers had succeeded the end of a royal line. But if the sword brought kingship to her wielder, she never became a cherished possession. Awkward size made her handling a burden, and though the Assyrian blades that survived the mishaps of time were coveted, no Paravian lord cared to claim one that carried a tragic reputation. Kianor eventually awarded Alithiel to a man, for valour in defence of his sister, Princess Taliens. Her grace was rescued from assault by Khadrim in the very pass we just crossed. Here, Asandir nodded, nodded in deference to Arathon. The emerald in your sword was cut by a sun-child's spells. The initial in the leopard crest changes with the name of the bearer, and since the blade fits the hand of a man to perfection, each heir in your family has carried her since. Asandir folded long hands. Arathon, yours is the only Assyrian blade to pass from Peravian possession. To my knowledge, she is the last of her kind on the continent. Lysair regarded the polished quillins with rueful appreciation. Small wonder the armourers of Dasinelor were impressed. They held that sword to be the bane of their craft because no man could hope to forge its equal. Asandi rose and stretched like a cat. The centaur ferreted himself could not repeat the labour. If, in truth, he still lives. Felidin raised dubious eyebrows. Did I hear right? Could a centaur be expected to survive for 18,000 years? The sorcerer fixed the bar with a bright and imperious sadness. The old races were not mortal, not as a man might define. The loss of the sun touched them sorely, and even my colleagues in the fellowship can't say whether they can ever be brought to return. The tragedy in that cannot be measured. I hope you enjoyed that or enjoyed scrubbing through that. Anyway, uh, so let's let's talk about why I like this passage enough to, you know, do a bright thread with it. Um, some very high level reasons uh, to start with. One, this is a moment of quietude after an intense action scene. And I love that they're sitting around telling stories, you know, just relaxing after a really difficult day so I like that sense of quietness after a uh, difficult scene it gave me a moment to breathe and that also meant that I enjoyed the story a lot more uh, than I maybe would have if it had just been randomly inserted somewhere else in between maybe say uh, two periods of quiet like if it like this was a good place for the story to be told, especially because the sword has just been used um, to um, gain victory, I guess. And I said I wouldn't spoil anything, so uh, that, I hope, doesn't spoil anything that came before. But anyway, the sword was used in the struggle that came before. And so it made sense that we'd hear more about it we didn't have to wait to find out why it worked the way it did. Um, so, yeah, it was just a really good spot for the story, for starters. Secondly, I tend to love scenes that describe some sort of blacksmithing or swordsmithing. I don't know why. I have been trying to, you know, uh, troll my personality and try to figure out what about it makes it so that 
I love blacksmithing scenes. I have no answer to that. I enjoy lifting weights, maybe something related to that. I don't know. I I genuinely do not know. There are several <laughs> in stories that I love that I appreciate that stand out to me. Uh there's I think Perrin's famous scene in uh, The Wheel of Time. I really enjoyed reading that. Uh in The Last Airbender, Avatar, The Last Airbender, a certain character so f- forges a sword from a meteorite. Loved watching that. I keep rewatching that scene whenever I remember it. Um yeah, and, and a few other examples I suppose come to mind, but um in just 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 that <laughs> a swordsmithing uh tale is very appealing to me for some reason. I don't know, don't ask me to explain. Um but so so it fits that bill as well. And of course, uh this story uh is yeah, this this sword has been forged from uh it was forged from the cinder of a fallen star <laughs> of course that pulled me in immediately and then we get to find out the history of the world this story was through the story of the sword we were told the history of the world um about i think the peravian so far were just sort of teased they were mentioned it wasn't really clear what they were and what kind of powerful beings they were it was hinted at but nothing was mentioned so here we got a lot of information about what sort of beings they were these peravians who uh the fellowship seems to be in some sort of awe about so <clears throat> and then it has some really beautiful passages here this one in particular about how the sword was uh what is it inlaid with patterns and um and had the spells of defense sung into it so <laughs> that's telling us about the magic of the world that's or or what we might think of as the magic of the world but really it's the physics of this world right it's it's just how things work in this world so it, it has to be the physics of this world <laughs> but uh so it's and and it's written so beautifully especially this passage uh asandi ran a finger over the inscriptions and as an answering flare of silver traced his touch his voice softened into reverence the fact that in the telling of the tale in remembering all of it in looking at and touching the sword or uh whatever it was he did with his finger on that on the inscriptions that he he felt reverence uh as he was speaking about the sword i that tells us about I guess we haven't really heard about the rest of the history of the sword yet just about its forging so far. So we know that a lot more is coming or that it has a much more deeper history, but also he is sort of revering the abilities of the Peravians or what they did with the sword, how much work went into it. 
And then the other thing about this magic or, or the physics of this world, as I want to insist on calling it, they, um, I, I have really appreciated this about all the scenes where the sorcerers uh, or anyone um, does magic i'm maybe I, I give up i'll call it magic um but whenever they do some sort of sorcery or conjure something it always takes a long period of time to complete and i believe there are reasons for that i've asked uh Johnny about it during one of our live stream discussions and i got an answer which uh might be a bit of bit spoilery so if you haven't read the books yet um, I'm, I'm not going to share it here but but it is for a reason that um, that any magic woven in this world or any conjury woven in this world takes place over a long period of time um, but I love that like I love that most magic that we see in this world most expressions of it aren't um aren't flashy and instantaneous they take time they take work to um create and do what they're supposed to do and once again that's evident in this story so we see that this uh sword was forged over the course of five years and it took five more years to imbue it with some sort of sorcery and then um what is it they sang the Ria, the riatan sang spells of defense into it and it took 21 masters a decade to end our alithiel so it it sounds like it took a net of about 20 years to make this sword so yeah i, I guess that's a great example of all the other magic in this world we see the magic happening as we go um in in many instances and those are um yeah i i love how those are described with the slow weaving and careful work that it takes and i will as you can probably expect do a bright thread uh, with just some scenes of uh the weaving of magic or conjury as it tends to be called in this book i don't think it's ever called magic it's mostly yeah grand conjury or maybe it's even called sorcery I'm not sure. I don't know if it makes a difference what we call it. I suspect it does. <laughs> but but I, I might keep slipping into calling it magic because it's easier to think of it that way. Even though, um, yeah, I, I convinced myself that it's actually the physics of the world. But uh, I'm looking on this world from outside and it feels like magic to me. So we'll call it that. <laughs> I suppose that's all right. So, um yeah, so so this is another example. Twenty years to weave this sword, or to, or to forge the sword and uh, imbue it with magic and sing spells of defense into it, and and then, well, first it sounds so beautiful. Going back to what I said about how beautiful all of this is, how beautifully descriptive the story was. Uh, this line, I guess, is a great example. Riathan, the unicorns, sang the great spells of defense. Masters of the lost art of name binding, they infused the alloy with harmonics tuned to the primal chord of vibration used by Ath Creator to kindle the first stars with light. Legend holds that the 21 masters took a decade to end our Alethiel alone. 
ad creator used the prime primal no there was a primal cord of vibration which ad creator used to kindle the first stars with light and the riyatin the unicorns are able to channel this and build spells of defense into the sword that is one powerful sword or actually there are what 21 of them uh no 13 of them sorry i i i forgot what i just read like 5 minutes ago but there are several of them and each of these took 20 years of work to make they are careful labors of love and they were built to serve a purpose and they were built to not be misused like this passage tells us asandir slipped oh wait um yes this bit the enchantment was balanced to peak in defense of the sword's true bearer dazzling the eyes of his enemy but only if the engagement was just very few causes that drive a man to kill are righteous ones probably arathon's father never knew the nature of the weapon he left to his son so this again uh it's sort of the themes of the book in a little <laughs> short story the we know um uh trying to not allow wars to happen uh, i am phrasing that very poorly but <laughs> preventing uh, bloodshed and wars uh over co- over causes that seem righteous but aren't really is a very big theme that cuts across the book and i think across the series and again we see that in this story it we see that a sword was built to only peak in defense if the engagement was just <laughs> and if if um if the cause is indeed righteous and not just that the bearer thinks so the sword will decide <laughs> so <laughs> yeah i i love that it that it's something that prevents bloodshed for the wrong reasons uh that it's a sword that doesn't allow itself to be used for the wrong reasons such a powerful sword must have these defenses built in that tells us about the nature of this world the nature of the paravians and i suppose the author who's writing this what a what a brilliant theme that is to weave into the story so yeah um <laughs> that was another reason why i thought this was a bright thread i suppose um and then here uh doubling down a bit more on some of the beauty that i found in this passage here um arathon fights his destiny that's something that he tends to do we won't talk about it too much because that's not the subject of the bright thread but um this bit arathon heard this and restrained a forcible wish to stop his ears walk away even shout nonsense any reaction to halt this brilliant weighty tapestry of names and sorrows far more comfortably left to the ghosts of forgotten heroes yet the stilled powers in the sword by their nature commanded his respect he could not bring himself to interrupt 
so this passage, uh, so this paragraph, along with what we read about Asandir, uh, his voice softening into reverence, uh, they are telling us about the sword. It, it's sort of inspiring some sort of reverence in me for the sword too. I have built up uh, some sort of uh, awe for it already because, you know, it's it's forged from the cinder of a fallen star. It has lights from the primal uh, chord of vibration, uh, you know, harmonics from the primal chord of vibration woven into it as defense spells. So I am in awe of it. But to layer it with the awe of these characters, it really adds to the depth of my awe, I suppose. Uh, and again, I think these are some, this is just a lovely way to phrase it. The stilled powers in the sword by their nature commanded his respect. Or, um, you know, I softened into reverence. This, this is really weighty <laughs> words to use to express this. And, you know, it, it works. <laughs> uh, and this bit, again, uh, the magicness of the sword. <laughs> that I, I love this little tidbit that uh, the emerald in your sword was cut by a sun child's spells. The initial in the leopard crest changes with the name of the bearer. <laughs> So this bit about the emerald having an initial that changes with the name of this, the bearer, that, well, that feels almost silly, but it's nice. Like the sword has some additional powers that seem some sort of, that seem somewhat unnecessary or irrelevant compared to everything else that it can do. But it's sort of a nice detail that was worked into it. So, you know, the Paravians uh, or this Iltaris Paravian who forged it or the sun child, actually, who um, cut the emerald. Uh, Ked <laughs> had some eye for detail, I suppose. Is that what that's telling us? But anyway, uh, the silliness of my analysis aside, I think, yeah, that's just such a wonderful detail to add to um, the sword, right? It has these big magic powers, but look, it also changes initials based on the name of the bearer. <laughs> and then finally, all of this ends with Asandir uh, rising and stretching like a cat. That was such a wonderful way to end this quiet moment and showing us like, I think up to this point, well, uh, so far, Asandir is just this powerful wizard and to have this image of him stretching like a cat it's cute I suppose <laughs> uh, so yeah I, I thought this was a wonderful story it really resonated with me and when I went back and looked at it for the purpose of this episode I found so many things that really explained <laughs> why I liked it I guess and I wanted to share it here on this episode <laughs> Now, on to the subjects that I sort of mentioned that I would <laughs> like to discuss earlier. Um, so, I keep... I am fairly new to fantasy. Uh, I Most of my uh, reading 
until the last three or four years was mainly focused on, I guess, a combination of contemporary and literary fiction. I think they're both maybe the same thing. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but occasionally I'd intersperse some fantasy and sci-fi. But now I've kind of switched it up. I read mostly fantasy and sci-fi because I realize that that's my genre. And I occasionally read contemporary and uh, literary fiction. So, and, and I also discovered Booktuber on the same time that I started reading tons of fantasy. I came across some terms that reviewers tended to use for the first time about three three years ago. Uh, one was the world feels lived in or criticism that it does not. Uh, and the other was, oh, the world building was info dumpy. And that, again, I had to go and try and figure out what they meant. So <laughs> uh, both of these terms are interesting to me. And like a lot of things that reviewers tend to say, and, but these two are what I want to talk about today. But in general, I feel like reviewers reviewers use many terms that don't have generally agreed upon definitions. Or if they do, that's not what they tend to be working off of. It's It, it feels like each person has their own definition when they say, <laughs> when they use these terms. So I want to... <laughs> uh, I want to explain what I mean by these terms before we move on to talking about them specifically. So when I, when I think of a world as feeling lived in, well, first, the term was new to me. But when I started thinking about what it could mean, uh, I think something like this world comes to mind. It feels, I think, a world that sort of has its own independent existence that its aspects or its history and lore haven't been built purely to drive the plot forward uh, purely for the purposes of the story we are being told but if this story wasn't told it could have an independent existence of its own so a world that feels like that for me would be a world that is lived in and why I want to bring that up <laughs> is that I think that this passage does a great job of making Athera feel lived in. So this initial passage at the, at the very beginning, for instance, where Lyser is uh, looking at some uh, at the shelter that they are at uh, in the cave. And then looking at the benches of split logs that were set up there to make it more comfortable for travelers who tend to pass that way. Or um, there were some stone walls and sheds because these buildings were leveled in some past conflict. So these these places existed independently of these characters. And they didn't have any reason to be mentioned here other than... Uh, to sort of describe the surroundings and sort of set up the environment for us. And in doing so, we also get this feeling that, you know, this place existed before our characters arrived there. Uh, and and then we go from there to just telling us about this cave that our characters have arrived at to then describing the history of the world. 18,000 years of history, no less. 
<laughs> and it starts with one sword that did a very powerful thing just a few hours ago and now we get told the history of the world how it was forged with the cinder of a fallen star we are told about some the way some of this conjury in the world works like uh the bit about the harmonics about ath creator we told about all the paravians who were just mentioned before so i think all of these served to really make the world feel lived in it it felt real and lived in before uh this section too but i think this really cemented that feeling this story like it has its own history like it has an existence outside of the characters that we are following and i thought that was really well done the other term that i hear a lot <laughs> in reviews uh is info dumps which again was new to me at the time i was new to uh booktube and fantasy i think both of these terms in some sense are more relevant to fantasy and sci-fi than uh contemporary literature i could be wrong about that um i i used to read reviews quite a bit before i started watching a whole lot of booktube too but i don't remember coming across these terms that much but maybe i just wasn't reading the right reviews to find them but um so info dump another term <laughs> that i feel like is used a lot but everybody has their own definitions so i'll tell you mine uh if i see <laughs> a lot of uh definitions in the process of the storytelling i read a book recently where and every time a new term came up it was this is called so and so and this is what that means and there were many many instances of that and i guess that was my uh, tube light moment of ah <laughs> that's what they mean by info dumping <laughs> so again i loved for this passage i loved how organic the elements of the world we were introduced to were uh so it's told through a story and of course it, and we've set up the stage in that two of the people listening to the story are new to the world uh they've just arrived here from a flint splinter world of dasinelor and the bard incidentally knows a lot of stories but doesn't believe that they are true so the fellowship sorcerer is setting him straight on that telling him some deep history of the world to set him straight on that so it's we get so so it makes sense that all of this information would be told through the story but also we're not using this opportunity to say oh this is the entire history of the centaurs this is the entire history of uh what sun children like here's what sun children are we i i don't know at the end of this passage i don't know anything about the sun children other than they are shorter than humans <laughs> um so we don't get this opportunity isn't used to tell us everything about the world that we that they could have told us it's only whatever is relevant to the story it's still very tightly tied to the history of the sword anything else that we get to know is incidental but it's done so organically i thought it was beautiful and it it i didn't think about that at the time i was reading it but 
I had read the other book that I mentioned where I had the tube light moment or was it is it a bulb moment uh, of oh that's what they mean by info dumping when it felt like I was reading a textbook because I had a term introduced followed by some sort of definition of it none of that is true here so when I was sort of revising <laughs> this passage for the purpose of this episode it struck me how organic all the elements of the world that were introduced to uh was like how easily they fit in without feeling like oh i'm ju- i'm just being dumped with a lot of information <laughs> so so for those reasons i thought again this passage um did really beautifully in terms of you know the world building elements of introducing um aspects of the world that we're not yet familiar with cool <laughs> so that was my bright red for the curse of the mistrait i hope you enjoyed that i will see you again uh in the next episode with a bright red from the malazan book of the fallen thank you so much for listening see you soon bye